I invite you to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7, we'll be picking up at verse 5, and we'll read all the way to the end of the chapter. Most, most, commentate, most commentaries that I've, I've been looking at recognize a transition point at Nehemiah 7. <clears throat> One scholar even sees it as the climax of the book. Now, few people would say such a thing. Uh, it is a long list of names. Uh, I know personally I've been excited about preaching the next chapter. Chapter 8, in my mind, is sort of the, the pinnacle. So I feel like we're at the precipice of this pinnacle. Um, and, and from my perspective, that's, that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. Uh, but we've got to get through this list of names. Now, we've already seen a list of names back in chapter 3. That dealt with the building of the temple and what, what's, or not the temple, building the walls around Jerusalem and the different sections as well as the gates and the towers. So they were rebuilding those things. And so is there really much more that can be said as, than, than what we've already mentioned? This particular list, in fact, with minor exceptions to the numbers and the, and the names, it already appears in Ezra 2. So Nehemiah acknowledges that. He found this list, and so he includes it here. But it's the same list that's already been uh, revealed in, in Ezra 2. So why bore you with this long list of names? And then, really, why include it twice? Does God really expect us to find something profitable for teaching in this passage? As 2 Timothy 3.16 promises about all of his word. Well, of course, sections like this and every difficult text in Scripture are tremendously important to read and teach. And so I trust you'll be edified by our study this morning. But before we read it, we do need to explore the value of biblical genealogies. I'll have a little bit of a, a lengthier introduction here before we read the passage because I want you to understand why genealogies are important. I love what O. Palmer Robertson says. He says that genealogies defy mythology. They defy mythology. Unlike ancient stories, scripture deals with real people and verifiable experiences. Right? These ancient mythologies are, are making up stories, making up gods, creating genealogies. Right? There's a, you can look up a Greek family tree, a Greek myth, mythological family tree of the gods. Right? But those ancient stories are vastly different than Scripture. And Scripture presents these individuals and gives names and places that actually existed. Right? You can verify their experiences with others. And so God's redemptive plan continues even as it's depicted through genealogies, right? You have different, biblical genealogies differ in content so that the names are different, but they always connect together so that there's, they're, they're all part of one continuous covenant of grace that God is, is, is inviting and, and continuing to expand, right? He's adding more number, numbers to that covenant of grace. And one of the surprising aspects of most of the biblical genealogies, even in the Old Testament, uh, is this 
Uh, you also see it in, in the New Testament genealogies of Jesus found in Matthew and, and Luke. But it's the number of non-Hebrew names. Right? God has set apart Israel, and many of those names, you can tell they're Hebraic, right? They're based upon, there's some reference to the God of Scripture, of Yahweh. So you have these non-Hebrew names in these genealogies. On the one hand, we know that the Messianic line of David traced through a few very prominent Gentiles. You have David's great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabite, who was the daughter-in-law of Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. That's one of the more remarkable aspects of Jesus' genealogy. We've reflected on that in the past. But in the case of the list in Ezra Nehemiah, more than likely, the non-Hebraic names likely reveal that their exilic masters had changed their names. And you see that in the book of Daniel. Daniel was given a different name as well as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of them given names that reflect their Babylonian gods. But we will also see some of the returnees could not prove their ancestry. In the verses that we'll read here, verses 61 through 65, it, it's a list of individuals who, or, or categories of people who could not prove their ancestry, including some of the priests. And so that certainly opens the door for Gentile converts to be included among the number of returnees, those who would belong to the covenant community by way of being converted, by adopting uh, the Hebrew God as their God, right? the God of Scripture. Later in the book, we'll also find that many of the exiled families, even among the returnees, had mixed marriages with foreigners. So we'll see that some of these names are, are like the genealogies reflect something of, of both being sinful and rebellious against God, as well as his preservation of his people. It's only a, a small portion of those who were carried off into exile ended up returning to Jerusalem during this, this first wave. And, and the, the list that's given here in Nehemiah 7 actually is that first wave of, of returnees that took place 90 years prior to Nehemiah and his governorship. And so we can assume that the vast majority of the Jewish nation that remained scattered among the, the foreign nations, the vast majority of them had heavily integrated into their culture so that they had basically, they felt like it was, it was too much. To, they couldn't even imagine returning and starting over. And many of them didn't, had never known what it was like. Uh, They'd been been, uh, born in exile. They didn't know what Jerusalem was about. Uh, The stories of remembrance had not been told to them, not been passed on. And so they'd become entirely disconnected from their heritage. And in light of all that, genealogies reveal something of man's sinful nature as well as God's covenantal faithfulness. And despite the constant opposition to God's promises, his covenant promises, both from outside of the walls of Jerusalem as well as inside the covenant community, right? You have God preserving a remnant for himself. And so Robertson concludes this little section in an article about um, 
covenant theology, he has that section on genealogies, and he says this, this genealogical aspect of the covenants underscores both the reality of redemptive history and the inclusion of peoples from all nations alongside Israel in God's covenant. So last week, we learned that the population in Jerusalem was sparse. That was in 7 verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So it's a, a sparse population within this city that has newly formed walls around it to protect them. Ninety years prior, about 50,000 people returned from captivity and exile, but they went back to their own towns, most of them not going back to Jerusalem. If, if, you know, it acknowledges that they went back to their own towns. We'll see that at the end of the section we'll be reading. And so the strength of the walls could not make up for the lack of citizens. You, you can have a beautiful, <laughs> strong wall that's easily penetrated if you have no one there protecting and guarding it. The city's defense depends upon people. So Nehemiah's solution was to wait for the Lord's guidance. He's not panicking, but he's waiting. And that is the solution to many of our most frustrating circumstances, right? To stop fretting, to wait for the Lord to guide and provide. And all of us face uncertainties of which we are seeking the Lord's guidance. And we can grow impatient in those uncertainties, and we can question if God will be faithful to keep his promises. And beyond that, we might even lose sight of the support that God has provided in the communion of saints. And so this, morning text, this morning's text corrects both of those tendencies. Biblical genealogies, one, reflect God's covenant faithfulness, and two, they remind us of the heavenly community to which we belong. And so let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage as we read it and study it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for speaking to us and even for challenging texts like this where we have a hard time even reading it and getting through it, let alone trying to apply it for our edification to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Lord, we recognize that no matter what I say or no matter what we read, apart from your spirit, it will be fruitless. And so we ask for your spirit to open our eyes, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear the truth, and soften our hearts that we might be prepared to obey and to honor you in light of your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Nehemiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles from whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehem, Baana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 
2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Era, 652. The sons of Pehath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Bibai, 628. The sons of Asgad, 2,322. The sons of Adonikam, 667. The sons of Bigvi, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Adder, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bezai, 324. The sons of Hareph, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anathoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephira, and Beeroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men, men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hated, and Ono, 721. The sons of Siena, Senea, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Judea, namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodavah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Adder, the sons of Talman, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tebaoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Sia, the sons of Paddan, the sons of Labana, the sons of Hagaba, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Yuza, the sons of Pasea, the sons of Besai, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nefushasim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basleth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Parida, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth Hazabam, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tal-Mila, Tal-Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Immer. 
but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobeah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants in all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Amen. This is God's holy word. <clears throat> so the first point in your outline that I want us to consider, and we will go through these two points um, a little quicker than we typically do. First point is a covenant-keeping God. So why would God want Nehemiah to enroll everyone by genealogy? Well, we've talked a little bit about the value of genealogical records. Right? They reflect God's covenant faithfulness. Um, they maintain the purity of the assembly. And they present circumstances. They, they allow them to see and, and consider the present circumstances in light of God's mission for them. And so we've already seen that genealogies reflect the reality of redemptive history. Uh, which implies that God is faithfully accomplishing his purposes. He fulfills his covenant promises for his covenant people. And so the list of names emphasizes the importance of maintaining a pure religion that is accountable to God's revelation. However, considering that verse we, can, we ended with last week, verse 4, right, the sparse population of Jerusalem what it implies is that their circumstances did not reflect a thriving community, like the promises that were given to them said. And so even though they recognized the importance of, of building the walls, it's as if they don't trust God to actually live within those walls. They needed homes to be rebuilt and occupied, but apparently Jerusalem was not as attractive to the, to the inhabitants as the surrounding uh, agrarian suburbs. And so Jerusalem's low population was a problem, so Nehemiah waited for the Lord's guidance, and the first thing that God compelled him to do about the problem was to enroll the people by genealogy. Count them 
name them, recognize your present circumstances. Who is living in Judah? Have you ever worried how you're going to pay next month's bills? Or how you can afford groceries at the end of the month before payday? I know I, we weren't the only family in seminary who experienced times like that. It would be like God telling us in that moment to look at our bank statements for the last 10 years and to reflect upon his provision. We would have seen five years of plenty when we hoped we would be able to sell our home and pay for seminary outright. Then we would have noted how the housing bubble began to burst and I lost my job and within a month of that, Carrie was delivering Caitlin. And in that whirlwind of confusion, not sure where we would go or how we would afford to go, I was accepted to attend seminary a year early. We sold our home and our main family car and then made ends meet for three months living with Carrie's parents. After moving to Mississippi for the next Four years, we watched God provide what we needed month after month. Never too much, never too little. Maybe you've gone through times like that in your life, or you've had lean months or even lean years, and you think it would be easier to trust the Lord as you continue to face them now. But looking back on years of evidence whether good or bad, recognizing that God brought you through it all is probably the best means of preparing for challenges that you'll face in the future. And so genealogies, they teach us to trust the covenant-keeping God who has called us and given us the same covenant promises that he gave to them. And when we go through trials and tribulation, we can look back even to previous generations, fathers and mothers who've gone before us, and we can trust that God will be faithful once again. Every name in this list was like God shouting, I am faithful. You can trust me. Just as I was with the sons of Parosh, all 1,272 of them, or 2,172 of them, whatever the number is, right? He was faithful to them. He says, so I am with you. Just as I preserved them, so I will preserve you. And even more importantly, from our new covenant vantage point, we can look back at the cross. All right, whenever we feel like the fulfillment of God's promises seem bleak, like when the walls are built and yet there's few people living within them, or when we feel like we've been abandoned by God, the cross reminds us of God's love. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He understood affliction. He understood what it felt like to feel abandoned because he was in our place. And so God's love is evident at the cross where he had a particular people in mind. And genealogies ultimately lead to the one who died upon that cross. Every time we read these names, these genealogies, it's pointing us forward. It's giving us a, a recognition of a, of a covenant people that's much bigger even than our, our present circumstances, right? 
Genealogies don't only reflect God's faithfulness, but they remind us of the heavenly community to which we belong. That crosses boundaries of age and geography. A covenant belonging people, that's our second point. What do we learn about the people of God from this text? Well, it's a diverse people with a sacrificial calling. Each of them was committed to God's singular objective. And the list isn't reserved for social elites or only those who made a name for themselves, who did some great work. We, in fact, know very little about most of these names. There's only a handful that we could pull out and say anything additional about. And most of them are, are simply unknown outside of this list. But we see that there's leaders among them in verse 7. Many of them are numbered from verses 8 through 38, people numbered according to clan and region. Uh, you have temple personnel, priests and Levites and servants of the temple listed in verses 39 through 60. And then you have that section in 61 through 65 of those who could not prove their genealogical connections. And so priests, without that genealogy, were restricted from eating the most holy things until they were able to inquire God through a priest who had the Urim and Thummim. Now, that would have been restricted to the high priest. They had a high priest, but apparently either he did not have the Urim and Thummim or they had lost it. And moving forward in church history, there's no mention of the Urim and Thummim from here. And so most believe that it, God had, you know, they had lost that and it was no longer something God wanted them to, to pursue and, and to consider ways for understanding his will. But prior to that, this would have been something that the high priest would have kept in their breastplate, uh, a Urim and Thummim. We don't actually know exactly what they were. They could have been stones. They could have been pieces of, of, of bone, um, anything that, that would have had two distinct looks right so one represented either a yes and, and the other a no or one was sort of approval and the other was negative one would have been like if you're uh, if you're not sure if someone is guilty of a crime the the priest could be um you know could inquire of the lord is he guilty and if he, and if he pulls out the the white one it might say he's innocent and the black one would say he's guilty but we don't we don't even know what color they were we don't know much about them but the point is that this was some acceptable form of determining God's will, but they didn't have it at this point. And so in all likelihood, these priests would have never, these supposed priests, right? They're suggesting that they're priests, but they don't have the record to prove it. So they probably never got to practice that work. But they were still part of the covenant community. The, the rigorism here, uh, one commentator says, the rigorism here is not designed to preserve a pure race, but to protect a pure faith within a community of believing people who would later welcome God's son, the world's savior and Israel's Messiah. It was preserving and protecting the house of God, right? the, the, the lineage of the priesthood, which would ultimately bring about the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so they total, the, the total numbered in this list is 
close to 50,000 people. It tells us that some of them were generous in their donations. They were willing to invest sacrificially following Nehemiah's example, the governor himself giving large sums to the need. And these returnees were, were leaving the only place that they knew for a land that's left, that had been left destitute and untended all these years. Their returning to the promised land probably felt more like going into the wilderness. You can understand why many of them did not want to return. But those who did trusted in the Lord, despite the circumstances, despite what it looked like. And now 90 years later, Nehemiah is reminding them, reminding their great-grandchildren of this same calling, that despite the circumstances, despite what you see, God is going to preserve and protect you. God is going to fulfill his promises, every last one of them. And so he's connecting them to their past. A list of names has much more meaning to those in some way connected to them. Right? Your own family tree means more to you than it does to me. On a national level, the names of war casualties from the U.S. mean more to us than those from other nations. This past August, our family had the privilege of visiting the historic sites in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., and it was, uh, it was great seeing all of these incredible buildings that you've only seen in pictures or, or in movies, these buildings that are along the National Mall. However, the best experience for me was vis visiting the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I could have spent the entire day in that building. The exhibits depict unbelievable scenes, and I mean that, unbelievable atrocities that took place and they depict them in a way that's memorable you can walk through a life-size train boxcar that mimics the dimensions of those used by nazi germany to transport jews to concentration camps there's this tower of face exhibit tower of faces which just has photos um, photo after photo that spans several stories photos of people who lost their lives in those concentration camps. And at one exhibit, you can listen to the voices of survivors sharing their heart-wrenching stories. It's a powerful encounter with one of the darkest realities in history. And one constant throughout the museum is the countless names, right? Names are mentioned in every room. Oftentimes, they're mentioned in the context of a story that they know about this individual, other times, they're contained among a, a list of those who experience a particular scene. There's a, a glass bridge that you walk across connecting two towers. And the names of the victims are etched into the walls of the glass. And once you see the memorabilia that's been preserved, and you watch the videos of the atrocities that took place, and you observe the, the journal entries of men, women, and children who didn't survive, the endless list of names become meaningful. Each name represents a story, even if we don't know precisely what that story is. 
And no matter which Holocaust museum you attend, there's many of them, you, one of the more powerful exhibits is always this massive list of names. At the end of the tour at, at this one in D.C., you enter into the Hall of Remembrance and your eyes are led to an, what's called an eternal flame. It's at the far end of the room and on the wall behind the flame is the, the following inscription from Deuteronomy. It says, only guard yourself and guard your soul carefully, lest you forget the things your eyes saw, and lest these things depart your heart all the days of your life. And you shall make them known to your children and to your children's children. And so we honor the names and we honor the God in whose image each of those names was created by remembering their stories. The names remind us that we are reading about reality. And so ultimately, the list that we read here in Nehemiah 7 and Ezra 2 is a list of returnees that ultimately point to the book of life that Revelation 21 speaks of. Cataloging the names of people who belong to an eternal city. The new heavens and the new earth. This is the, the true city of God that Jerusalem faintly foreshadowed. It's a city whose designer and builder is God. That Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 tells us Abraham looked forward to. The genealogy, this genealogy will result ultimately, later on we'll read about it in chapter 11 verse 1, about how they end up casting lots to determine which 10% of the population would dwell in Jerusalem. And so at this point, Jerusalem is a dim, very faint shadow of the new heavens and new earth. It wasn't even appealing for anyone to live in. They had to cast lots in order to determine who would go. And those who were eventually selected, they move there sacrificially, and they're honored by the people for being willing to go. Maybe you wonder what God's up to. You wonder what is happening in our nation. Did did you or your family draw the short stick to end up in this state? Well, maybe worrying too much about this temporary dwelling where we live for such a brief stint in light of eternity radically misses the point. The bigger question we should be asking is whether or not we belong to the city of Zion. And it's far more important to know where we live in eternity rather than where we will live temporarily. And so who's worthy to dwell in the city of Zion? Psalm 2.6 says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So Zion is the holy hill of God. And then David in Psalm 15 verses 1 through 2 says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who's worthy to ascend your holy hill? And the answer is this, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And the rest of the psalm goes on to speak of only one person who could live up to the standard. It points forward to Jesus Christ. None but Jesus could ascend to that hill. And yet he invites you to join him, to be united with him 
in his perfection and to dwell with him for all eternity in everlasting security. So do you belong to this city, that city? Do you belong to the true city of Zion? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder. Even in a, a passage that's just given a, a list of names, it, it brings us to reality. It helps us to see that this isn't just mythical. This isn't just mythology. This is, these are lives, true lives, that have been given uh, over to your kingdom purposes. Families and generations of families who have been brought into the covenant community and then who have faithfully trained up their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. And they've passed on the stories of your revelation. There could be no more important calling to us. Lord, help us not to forget these things. Help us not to lose sight, ultimately, of what they point to. That they give us a picture of, of glory for all eternity that awaits. So, Lord, we pray that that would be our delight, that that would be what we long for, our hope and our motivation, and that it would be so compelling to us that it would be on the tips of our tongues with everyone we speak to, that we would share with them the hope of glory, and that you would be honored as we lift up your name and as we remember the names of those who bear your image. And we recognize that it points us forward to that book of life that only by your grace our names are found in as well. And because of that, we belong to a community. You've given us a covenant community that we can enjoy now. And even though we go through trials and tribulation, even amongst ourselves, divisions and discord, these are brothers and sisters with whom we will spend eternity with. And so help us to look forward to that. Help us to prize and treasure the friendships and the fellowship that we enjoy here. As it's a reflection of what you've done in our lives. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond to the preaching of God's word with hymn number 317, What Child Is This?